I have been longing for this time for quite a while now of walking through the book of Revelation together as a church. This is not an easy book to preach through, but nor is it an impossible uh, book. Uh, God has given us his word for the whole counsel of God to be applied to our lives. And so I believe that what we find in the book of Revelation is a book of great blessing, a book of great enrichment. It's a book that is one of my favorites. And so I have 66 favorite books of the Bible, and this happens to be one of those. Typically, though, Revelation isn't Preach through. We love to preach through books of the Bible here at Community. Uh, God gave us his word in that form and in that capacity, and so we believe that it is edifying to the church. It is strengthening to us as believers to walk through books of the Bible. Now, typically what happens is the church or pastor will start off and say, we're going to have a sermon series in the book of Revelation. And eight or nine messages in, as soon as the seventh letter to the church at Latiosia has been preached, the next gathering is, open your Bibles to the book of James. And there are 19 other chapters of God's word in the book of Revelation that oftentimes go unpreached, that oftentimes do not get looked at. And that I feel so bad because the, the church is robbed of such a blessing. The pastor is robbed of such a blessing of spending time in this book. Does it have its challenges? Absolutely, it's got its challenges. Does it have its benefits? You better believe it, eternal ones. Oftentimes, Revelation is looked at as just a a book of eschatology or a study of the end times. But the book of Revelation is not just eschatological in nature. It is filled with bibliology. There are over 500 references to the Old Testament, either directly quoted or alluded to in the book of Revelation. Far greater than any other New Testament book, the, the, the book of Revelation is filled with the Bible. It is absolutely filled with, out of its 404 verses, 278 of them are either a direct quote or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. That's 68%. So it's not just about end times. It's about the Bible. It's not just about end times. It's not just about the Bible, but it's about the church. There's a deep, rich ecclesiology to be found in the book of Revelation. Anthropology, the study of mankind and the kingdoms and the political systems and the economic systems are on full display in the book of Revelation. Harmatology or the study of sin, we see the ultimate conclusion of what sin brings to this world and ultimately will bring to those who reject our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Soteriology, the idea of God's grace and that salvific grace and how somebody is brought from death to life is found embedded in the book of Revelation. But more importantly, And more profoundly, is Christology. It is a a beautiful uh, rendering and picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that at the end of our time together through this book, which will take us seven months, uh, that we will find a deep and a great truth and your strength will will be strengthened, your faith will be strengthened as a result of it. Now, you may say seven months, that's a, are we going to be in one book? For seven months, listen, the, the great uh, Dr. Criswell, uh, Dallas, uh, uh, First Dallas, it took him three years to preach through it. So, listen, we're going to fly through this thing, okay? 
The book of Revelation oftentimes, though, has two approaches that people take to it. The first approach is to avoid it at all costs. The first approach is to look at the book of Revelation like this. Maybe. There it is. There it is. We see Revelation and we say, I ain't going there. I'm not going in there. I don't want nothing to do with that. It doesn't make any sense to me, and I avoid it at all costs. That's typically the first approach. And unfortunately, we miss out on so much because oftentimes the book of Revelation is avoided by so many individuals. But to quote, to, to quote Tolkien in his book, The Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, as Bilbo t- talks to Frodo, we see a warning that needs to be applied as well. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. I think that's good advice for us as well, that if we're not careful, we'll end up in the weeds. If we're not careful, we're we're going to be making things in Revelation out to be things that God never intended the book of Revelation to communicate to us. And so there is an approach that says that void it at all costs, and there's an approach that says that there is this unbalanced obsession to the neglect of the whole counsel of God to where you look like this. And you got bulletin boards and red string and you're drinking unhealthy amounts of coffee that are laced with energy drinks and you're talking about all of these Black Hawk helicopters and who, who the 666 sign of the beast is and, and we all know who the Antichrist is. It's Tom Brady. We know it. We know it. As a Jet fan, I've been knowing that for a long time. We don't have to wonder. We know it's Tom Brady. But individuals get so caught up. And do you know why the, in the third chapter, the 14th word, the sixth letter of that 14th word in the third chapter is a J? Because Jesus is coming back in July. <laughs> what in the world? What in the world are you talking about? That don't mean that. It means January. No, but... <laughs> There are individuals that take an unhealthy approach to the book of Revelation, to the neglect of every other book of God's holy word. And so there are two approaches. And so today, I pray that we'll be able to lay some some groundwork so that we have a firm foundation, that we make sure that we are staying within the boundaries that God's word sets up for itself and we don't end up in the weeds because there's a third approach. There's a biblical approach. We don't have to fear this book. We don't have to make it into some kind of Gnostic, deep, hidden knowledge that only a few individuals can figure out. God gave us his word so we can know his word, all of his word. And you can study the book of Revelation, and you can understand the book of Revelation. You don't have to be fearful of it, and you don't have to make an unhealthy obsession of it either. Now, there are typically four views that are held in reading the book of Revelation as a whole. On the back, um, there in the, on the round table in the back, there's a sheet of paper, some staple papers. I would encourage you to grab it. 
Uh, I'm going to set several things back there during this series. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go into each and every aspect, or we would be in this series for three years. Uh, So I'll put different things out there that I'll reference and then that you can read later and get and glean some more information if you would like uh, to do so. But there are typically four views that the book of Revelation is read through, or four lenses, if you will. Uh, The uh, the historicist view, the preterist view, the idealist, uh, the idealist view, and the futurist view. The historicist view is this. It, It really is that the book of Revelation is communicating the events that span the entire church age and that each of these events are symbolic for something that has according to their uh, translation or their view, has typically already happened. In other words, God revealed in advance events spanning the entire church age through the symbolic visions of the apocalypse. Seven seals, in other words, are a reference to the barbarian invasion and the defeat of the Western Roman Empire. The trumpet judgments, in their view, are the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, The scorpion-tailed locusts and serpent-tailed horses of the fifth and sixth trumpets are Muhammad's Arabs and their sweep uh, across the land, uh, followed by the Turks attacking Constantinople. The two beasts are the political and priestly arms of the corrupt Roman church. So they would read Revelation as uh, a picture of the church age and events that have happened already in history. The the preterist view is that there is, uh, it was future prophecy when given, but the majority of it has already been fulfilled mainly in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Then there's the idealist view that really look at Revelation as just symbolic of good and evil. Uh, There is no fulfillment of specific prophecy. There is uh, no fulfillment of historic or futuristic events per se, but affirm only that spiritual lessons and principles find recurrent expression throughout history and are symbolically depicted in the verses and the visions. Uh, Now, I'm going to go ahead and play my hand. I don't hold to any of those. I hold to the fourth view, the futurist view. Uh, I hold to the dispensational premillennial view of of Scripture, Uh, but Where Scripture is to be dogmatic, we should be dogmatic. Where it is not dogmatic, we should be gracious. I think oftentimes people don't want to, pastors don't want to preach through the book of Revelation because so many people have different views of how to interpret Revelation, and so they don't want to venture into that territory. Listen, I'm going to try to be as fair as I possibly can to each of those views to extend grace. I would ask that you would do the same. I may preach a, a text in a way that you look at it through a different land, lens, or I'm going to preach through the book of Revelation through the futurist uh, uh, perspective, which says basically everything from chapter 4 on has not happened yet and will happen one day in the future. I believe that the rapture happens sometime in between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And that as a result, those that experience the great tribulation are not the church, but those individuals that have rejected our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ up to that point. But many individuals will be saved. I believe that we're in the church age. The church age will conclude at the rapture, and then God will revisit his work with the nation of Israel uh, in doing so. But again, my goal is not to preach a view. My goal is to preach scripture. 
We may differ on some of the aspects of that, but I pray where God's word is dogmatic, we will all be dogmatic and that we will all make sure that we rest upon God's word and God's word alone. And so I want you to be good Bereans, study God's word for yourself. My, my, my heart is that you would go and that you would study out God's word for yourself as a result of this. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context, and then we'll, we'll dive into our first chapter of Revelation. The majority of our time spent together will take whole chapters. Uh, we'll spend a little bit more time in chapter 2 and 3, and then we'll really start to get going. So it'll take us, we'll start off a little slow, and then we'll build up a little steam and as we get going over these next, six, uh, next seven months. The author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. The same one who wrote the Gospel John, the same one who wrote the epistles of John 1, John 2, and John 3. Uh, all of uh, those are the same individuals, the one who was the disciple that Jesus loved, who was at the foot of the cross when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, many individuals date the, this book to be written around 95 A.D., 96 A.D., underneath the, the reign and the persecution of the Roman Caesar, the Roman Emperor Domitian. Uh, we see that in, in this uh, reality as well that it's got different types of genres. So it's important for us at the outset to do some of this kind of academic work, if you will, so that we make sure that we have a proper perspective as we walk through the rest of the book. And so uh, to understand this book, we got to know what genre it is written in. Uh, the problem is it's, it's kind of written in a couple. Uh, it's apocalyptic in nature. We see that in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Greek word for revelation is the apocalypse. Uh, that's, that's what we see. So is it apocalyptic in, in, in nature? Absolutely to some degree. But there are some aspects of Jewish apocalyptic literature that is not found in the book of Revelation. But look with me in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's also a prophecy. It's written in an apocalyptic style so that the readers would understand, but it ultimately is a prophecy. Look at verse 11. It says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So we also see that it's a letter. So it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and it's also epistolatory. So all of those realities come into play in the book of Revelation, and it's important for us to understand that as well. Now, let's read the first chapter together as we unpack this first message entitled, The Coming King, and then let us see what that foundation is that is being laid in the first chapter that we will build upon as we walk through the subsequent 21 chapters. God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Notice it's not plural, the revelation, it's just one of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. 
John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, let me pause real quick. That is a Trinitarian uh, reference. The grace and peace that is being extended is being extended by the perfect, holy, triune God. We see God the Father uh, that he is the one who is and was and is to come. And then we see a reference to the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits. Now, that may seem like a strange way to communicate who the Holy Spirit is. Uh, I believe that this is a reference to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 11 Uh, Verses 1 through 2, where God's word says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the root shall bear it. And the Spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, second way to refer to the Holy Spirit, two, and understanding, the Spirit of understanding, three, the Spirit of counsel, four, the Spirit of might, five, the Spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, Seven. All of these, I believe, are references to the Holy Spirit. So when we read about the seven spirits, we're just reading about the Holy Spirit. So we see God the Father, we see the Holy Spirit, and we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now here's a key to the first chapter of Revelation verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. In other words, he's saying, I'm the A to Z. I'm the beginning and the end. It says, I am the one who is and who was and is to come. I am the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Latiosia. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. I believe uh, some individuals will say these are literal angels, that every church has a guardian angel, if you will, that, that oversees it. I believe that this is a symbolic reference to the pastors of each of these churches because this word is to be given to them so that it can be read. 
Uh, I believe that that uh, will show us that these are the pastors of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches which comprise chapters 2 and chapters 3. Now, in chapters 2 and 3 in the letters, we'll see that Jesus will uh, refer to, to himself in various aspects and give us various glimpses into his character and to his nature. And all of those are pulled from chapter 1 and what we have already seen in chapter 1 in the references that he gives. And so chapter 1 is a very important uh, chapter for us to understand so that we can get our arms wrapped around the whole of the book of Revelation. Now, I want to answer three questions this morning in our time that we have remaining together. The first one is, what is Revelation about? Well, we see in chapter one, we see this question answered. The central purpose of Revelation, the very first thing that I want you to see is that we are given the central purpose of Revelation, or what is Revelation about? Listen, the central purpose ultimately is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Whatever interpretive stance you take, whether it's the historicist, the preterist, the idealist, or the futurist, whatever interpretive stance you take, if you come to any other conclusion other than this is about the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you have missed the main point of Revelation. It's the exaltation of Jesus. In fact, we see that there is a purpose of revealing Jesus Christ to us through the revelation. Look in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This word revelation is really this idea of an unveiling, something that was previously hidden is being unveiled. The picture here is a statue that is underneath a sheet waiting for the time of unveiling. Everybody has gathered. The work is completed. And now, you, though you may see the shape of the statue underneath the sheet, when the sheet is lifted, when the sheet is removed, the statue is unveiled, and you get a deeper, fuller picture of that individual. And for us, that is what the book of Revelation does for Jesus Christ. We know that he came and he died. We know that he rose. But what about in the future? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation, gives us a deep picture into the character, into the work, and into our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's future as God has planned. We see in verse 1 that he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. In the King James Version, that signified, he made it signified. Uh, this idea is that he has given his revelation through various signs. It's to show by a sign. And as we study revelation, we will encounter a great deal of symbolism. There will be a great deal of symbolism found in the book of Revelation. And if we don't have the proper... Um, understanding of those symbols, we will get way out into left field as to what it is that God's word is trying to communicate. And even though he uses symbols, there's literal truth behind those symbols. So just as Satan is referred to as a red dragon, that doesn't mean that Satan literally is a red dragon, but it does mean that there is a literal Satan. Just like it will talk about a great harlot. It's not talking about some well-known prostitute. It is talking about a literal world system economically, religiously, 
It's talking about a true Babylonian government in the sense that it is rejecting God and God's kingdom and looking to self. The seven lampstands, we see these aren't true actual lampstands. They represent something. They represent literal churches as revealed to us in the 20th verse of chapter 1. And so we're going to encounter a lot of symbolism. Numbers have meanings. Some colors have meanings. Uh, Some of these visions and what we see, they have meanings. They themselves aren't to be taken literally, but what they are communicating are to be taken literally. Now, we see in the 19th verse, a very key verse to all of Revelation, because this is the outline that John is giving to us, and it's found in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That's the outline. He says, Write the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. Write about what you saw on the island of Patmos when you were in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I came to you. Write about that. Secondly, write those that are. Write the things that are. In other words, that's chapter 2 and 3. Write to the existing seven churches. Write to them as they are in that moment. Write to them. Write to them that, that truth in the present. But then it says, those that are to take place after this. I believe chapter 4 on is referring to the after this. In fact, real quickly, look at chapter 4, verse 1. After we've seen chapter 1, which is the things that you have seen, after chapters 2 and 3, which are the things that are, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, remember, right? Therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, Chapter 4, verse 1, after this, I looked and a door standing open in heaven. And so now we're going to leave uh, the, the picture of what is transpiring on the earth at the time of those seven churches. And now we get a glimpse into heaven. After this, these are future events. And I believe that the church is raptured before chapter 4. Uh, we read uh, about the church being mentioned time and time again in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And they, you don't read of the church after chapter 4 until you get to the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe that is a, a good uh, indication that the church is raptured before the tribulation will transpire. And we'll get into much of the timelines and much of those things as we unpack God's word together uh, as well. And so the purpose is of revealing Jesus Christ. Now, that's the outline that John gives. I, I will break the book of Revelation up into six sections. Let me give you those six sections, and it'll give you a good understanding of the overall flow of the book of Revelation. In fact, I would encourage you this week to sit down and read the book of Revelation in its entirety so you can start to get a grasp of the book in its entirety. The first section, chapters 1 through 3, are letters of the living one. Jesus is going to say, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I am the living one. And then he's going to commission John to write letters to these seven churches. Then chapters 4 through 5 is worship of the worthy one. We get a worship service in heaven. We get a a picture of the throne of God Almighty. We see the the, the only one that is worthy to open the seven seals. Then 
chapter 6 through 10, signs of the sovereign one. That the sovereign king and the sovereign God is trying to show mankind through these various signs their great need for him. But yet they reject that and they do not repent. Chapters 11 through 13, enemies of the eternal one. This is where we're introduced to the beast and uh, the antichrist. We see the persecution of the two witnesses. Then in chapters 11, or excuse me, 14 through chapter 19, verse 10, is the wrath of the righteous one. These are the bold judgments where God begins to pour out his wrath upon humanity. And then 19, 11 through 22 is coming of the conquering one, and that is about the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his setting up his kingdom, and all of the final things before the new heavens and the new earth. And so the purpose is central in revealing Jesus Christ. Secondly, the purpose of rewarding the reader, that there's a reward for the reader. We see in verse 4 of chapter 1, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, that there, there is the reward of grace and peace. Now, notice the order. You can't have peace until you first experience the salvific grace of God Almighty. This is what the book of Revelation will show us time and time again, that regardless of what it is that we're going through, if you know Jesus Christ, you can have peace. If you have not experienced the salvific grace of God Almighty, you will not have peace here on this earth. For you to have peace, you first got to experience God's grace. And that is only experienced through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there's a reward of grace and peace. But we also see that in verse 3, that there's a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing. Now, there are seven blessings that are found in the book of Revelation, or the seven Beatitudes of Revelation. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount, we know of the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew 5. We see in Revelation there are seven Beatitudes, seven blessed statements. Revelation 1.3, Revelation 14.13, Revelation 16.5, Revelation 19.9, Revelation 20, verse 6, Revelation 22, verse 7, and Revelation 22.14. It says that there is a blessing. No other book of the Bible makes this promise. Now, it is true, every book of the Bible brings blessing into our lives because it is the revealed word of God that teaches us about him, about this world, and about ourselves. But no book of the Bible gives a specific blessing like the book of Revelation gives us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. So this should be applied to our lives. That's why some of these other views don't make a whole lot of sense because there's not a whole lot of application to our lives to be found in them. But for us, we understand that God wants us to know the deep truths of revelation and to apply them to our lives. So we see the purpose of rewarding the reader. We also see the purpose of reporting the return of Christ. And ultimately, that is the central purpose that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming Verse 7 reminds us, behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. In other words, even in light of that, Jesus come. May you return and may you return soon. 
Revelation is the climax of the Bible. What was began in God's program in Genesis finds its conclusion in the book of Revelation. All that began there in Genesis is completed and fulfilled in keeping with God's sovereign will as revealed in the book of Revelation. We see in Genesis the creation of the heavens and the earth. We see in Revelation the new heavens and the new earth. We see in Genesis uh, the first Adam is reigning on the earth. We see in Revelation the second Adam, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is reigning over all creation here on the earth. We see in the book of Genesis, the fall of mankind into sin. We see in the book of Revelation the eradication of all sin and the establishment of God's kingdom where there is no sin. We see that Christ is coming, and he's not coming as a suffering servant as he did the first time. He's coming as the conquering king. The first time he came to a cross, the second time he's coming to a coronation. The, the first time, he came to a tree. The second time that he returns, he's coming to a throne. He is king, and that he is Lord, and that he is coming back one day. Now, this says that this must soon take place because the time is near. Look at verse 1. The things that must soon take place. Verse 3, for the time is near. Now, there are many people who say that the, the viewpoint of the futurist viewpoint uh, has some problems in this because it talks about something that is supposed to happen right away. But this is not talking about in a sequential order. It's talking about a certainty. It's talking about a subtle, suddenly, a subtleness to, 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 to this, that, that this is going to transpire suddenly, that when Christ returns, it's going to happen in a blink of an eye, as Scripture has told us. This is the idea of certainty, just like in Romans 16, 20, where we read, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Same word that is used in Romans 16, 20 is used here in verse 1, must soon take place. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, we know that the ultimate defeat of Satan comes when Jesus, at the end of the millennial kingdom, throws him into the lake of fire, and he is done away with for all of eternity. His bounty will never be loosed again. Well, in Romans 16, 20, it talks about that soon happening. What it means is that it's certainty. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life upon it. The devil is going to be defeated, and so therefore, he's already defeated. There's a certainty, and it's going to happen in a blink of an eye because man knows no time or the hour of our Christ's return. So these things speak of the imminency of Christ, that at any moment he may come for his church. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that I pray we would see the importance and the urgency of this message. I saw a meme, and I thought it hit perfect onto the very heart of Revelation where it speaks of the reality that we, as a result of the book of Revelation, should not build deeper bunkers but longer tables. The book of Revelation is not designed for us to start prepping and becoming you know, a prepper and we're down in our little hobbit hole storing up all kinds of uh, food or as the pandemic has shown us for whatever reason, toilet paper, uh, that we're just storing up all of this stuff and we're building fences and we're trying to keep everybody at arm's length because of what we read at Revelation. No, no, no. What the book of Revelation is trying to get us to is that you will share the gospel with your neighbors. 
You open your home and have them sit down at your table and tell them your great love for them and your great concern for them because they have rejected Jesus Christ up to this point and you desire for them to place their faith in Christ Jesus because what is coming for all of those that are separated from God Almighty is horrific. And if the love of God has been poured out in our heart, how dare us keep it to ourselves? If you had the cure of cancer and you never shared it with anybody, that's a monstrous thing to do. Well, there is a disease far greater than cancer that is wrecking and ravaging our world, our community, and our homes, and it is the disease of sin, and we have the cure, and his name is Jesus. How dare us ever keep it to ourselves? This ought to build within us a, 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 a zealous nature. It ought to build within us an urgency, an imminency that Christ may return at any moment. So I need to share the gospel with as many people as I possibly can. And I pray that that's what our time together will start to elicit in your heart and in your life. A desire to share the gospel with as many people as you possibly can. We see the purpose of reporting the return of Christ. Secondly, the central person of Revelation. So who is Revelation about? What is Revelation about? It's about the return of of Christ. Well, who is Revelation about? It's about Jesus. He is the central person of Revelation. Look at verse 1. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, you can get a little bit as far as the nuance of the word revelation. There's an objective genitive. So is it Jesus being revealed Or is it the subjective genitive where Jesus is doing the revealing? I think it's both. Jesus is the one that is revealing God's plan to John, but it's also about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he, the one that is returning, is revealed in chapter 1 as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. It speaks of his his deity and his humanity. It speaks of the fact that he is God and that he is man, that, that Christ is the same individual who died on the cross and was raised from the grave. Look at verse 5. The first half of verse 5 says to us that this greeting of grace and, uh, grace and peace comes from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. This speaks of God's, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's deity. It speaks of his mission here and his work on earth. The faithful witness is his crucifixion. The firstborn of the dead is his resurrection. The ruler of the kings on earth is his ascension where he sits at the right hand of the father as king of kings and the lord of lords. It also speaks to us about who he is as God in the sense that he is a a prophet and priest and king. That he is the prophet, the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the priest. He is now the intermediary between a sinful man and a perfect and a holy God. And he is the ruler of the kings on earth. In other words, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. In fact, in Johannian literature of all the writings of John, we'll see that he takes those three positions throughout. So in the gospel of John, he's presenting Jesus as the prophet. In his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jesus Christ is the priest. 
that we have sinned, but he is faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. He's the intermediary. In the book of Revelation, he's presented as the sovereign king. And that is how he will return. But he's also referred to as the son of man in verse 13. He saw one standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, one looked like son of man. Jesus is referred to as the son of man 88 times in the New Testament. It's his favorite uh, name that he gives to himself. This comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. The book of Daniel has a lot of implications for the book of Revelation. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, go back to verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And if you back up to verse 6, it says that he made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Take those words, and we read in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's the heavenly father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In this vision in Daniel, we see the four kingdoms are done away with, and the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God, is set up. In Revelation 1, we see that this is the one who is returning, and when he returns, this is what he will set up, his kingdom that cannot be shaken and his kingdom that cannot be moved. But not only do we see Jesus Christ presented as the central person of the book of Revelation in the sense of son of God, son of man, but he's also savior. That Jesus Christ is a Savior. We see that in the second half of verse 5, where we read that Jesus Christ, the one who's returning, is him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that we find our freedom. And he did it out of love. The one who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Have you been freed by your sins? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Well, that's the only way we can find forgiveness of our sins. It's through Christ and through Christ alone. Out of God's great love for us, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us on the cross. But not only is he presented as son of God, son of man, not only is he presented as the savior, 28 times Jesus is referred to as the lamb, the lamb who was slain, the, the lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. Not only is he presented as son of God, son of man, not only is he presented as savior, but he's presented as sovereign. Look at verse 6. He made us a kingdom. He has glory and dominion forever. Verses 13 through 16 saying, in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. That speaks of the sovereignty of God Almighty. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. That speaks of the purity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That speaks of the omniscience and the judgment that is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace that speaks of the judgment of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the wrath of those that have rejected him will be crushed under his feet in the wrath of his winepress. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. He walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. It speaks of the sovereignty over the church, that he is the head of the church. Listen, I'm not the head of this church. The deacons aren't the head of this church. The staff isn't the head of this church. 
the congregation that comprises this church, we're not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of this church. This is Jesus' church. It belongs to him and to him alone. We are just members of one body under which he and he alone is the head. He is the sovereign. We see that from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This speaks of the idea of separating. Speaks of the idea of those that to some the gospel smell like death and to some it smells like the fragrant aroma of life everlasting. He has the sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This talks about the glory and the grandeur and the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 18. He says, and the living one, he says that I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He says, I'm in control. I'm the sovereign. So not only do we see the question answered of what Revelation is about, It's about the return of Christ. Not only do we see who Revelation is about, it's about Jesus Christ, but we also have the question answered, why does Revelation even matter? Why spend the next seven months studying the book of Revelation? What is the central provision of Revelation? Well, first and foremost, it is to provide security in storms. I don't believe the church goes through the great tribulation, but I know that the church goes through tribulation, goes through sufferings, goes through storms. In the book of Revelation, what it does is it provides us security in storms. Remember, there's grace and peace to be had for all those that are in Christ Jesus. But we also see uh, the reality that in verse 17, when John saw him and fell at his feet, though dead, Jesus laid his right hand on him saying, fear not. There are often times in our lives that what we experience in this fallen and broken world, we want to fall down dead. We're we're gripped with fear. And the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do you see the gentleness? Do you see the love? Do you see the grace and the mercy? It's the same right hand that holds the seven stars. The The same right hand of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that was pierced with nails bends down and touches gives a fresh touch to the Apostle John and gives him two words, fear not. But why not fear? Because he is the first and the last and the living one. He died and behold, he is alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen, this world can do a lot of things to us, but it can never take Jesus from us. Fear not. The words of the book of Revelation is the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, fear not. Not only does it provide security in storms, but it provides strength during struggles. Listen, we're going to have struggles here on this earth and in this world. God's word says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He says, I will strengthen you. I'm the Almighty. There's none greater than me. There's none more powerful than me. I will strengthen you, and I will strengthen you alone. Not only that, we see in verse 9, that the book of Revelation will show us time and time again that it provides sense of sufferings. God's plan is not thwarted, that God is in control of all things. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit. Notice what he's saying. Something that I've learned in my time in prison in my time doing prison ministry, is they can put 
walls and fences with as much razor wire around them to keep people in, but they can't build a big enough wall or put enough razor wire to keep the Holy Spirit out. If God's going to move, God's going to move. He says, I'm in prison. Why? Because he's been faithful to God Almighty. Because I've been preaching God's word, I find myself in prison, but they couldn't stop me from worshiping my Lord, that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He says, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. You had tribulation in this world? As a pastor, sometimes I sit across individuals who are in their darkest, most painful moments. What do you tell somebody when they're sitting across from you? And their child has committed suicide. One of their children has been given a terminal diagnosis. What do you say to somebody who marriage has just crumbled completely out from underneath them because their spouse was unfaithful to them or just abruptly left? What do you say to somebody who is facing financial ruin because of a decision that was made outside of their control. What do you say to somebody who is so depressed they don't know what to do? What do you say at the funeral for that eight-year-old? What do you say to that family who's just lost everything? I'm oftentimes lost for words. What can you say? Other than that's not the finality of God's plan. See, what Revelation shows is that God has a greater plan than the brokenness of this world because there is coming a day when he returns and all sin and all death, all disease, all sickness is absolutely eradicated where as God intended things to be from the creation of the world will be. And so regardless of what it is that we experience here on this earth, the heartbreak, the pain, and the suffering, that is not God's ultimate plan for humanity. That is not God's ultimate plan for you. That is not God's ultimate plan for me. We find God's ultimate plan in Christ Jesus, in his return, and the kingdom that he initiates when he does so. So it makes sense out of our suffering. And I pray that each of you will find in this book a deeper relationship with Christ, a deeper understanding of your purpose, You will find security in storms. You will find strength during your struggles. And you will find sense in the middle of your sufferings.